Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. With me, as always, is Dr. Maria Tafalaga. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. Amid all the gloom that we've uh, been seeing and living through, and and I guess discussing on Democracy Sausage, horror of um, the Middle East, and of course racism and bigotry and sectarianism and fanaticism and all those all those awful things that have that have kind of been adduced, not just there, but around the world, uh, in Australia as well. It's kind of good this week, I think, to be talking about something a little more uplifting, perhaps in some ways an Australian success story. So we thought we might talk about what is 2023, the 40th anniversary of the election of the Hawke government, a very important government. Some of our listeners, of course, will be much younger than that and won't necessarily know a lot about it. So We'll hopefully be able to bring you along and why this is significant, but we're going to be talking with Troy Bramston. He's the author of Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny, among, I think, about nine books now. Is that right, Troy? Uh, I think it's a few more than that, Mark. Oh, is it? <laughs> I, 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 someone, I heard someone say that the other day, and I must admit I didn't go and count them, but um, many, many books. He's into double figures, let's say that. Um, and uh, that's that's impressive. Of course, he's also a senior writer at The Australian and at one time a, uh, a Rudd government staffer, I believe, worked for Kevin Rudd, correct? A uh, long, long time ago. I try, I try to forget it, but yes, that, that is true. <laughs> well, let's, I think a way of going into this, Maria, and I'm very happy to, to, to see where you want to take it, but one way of going into this in, in service of that point about some people having a better understanding of the significance of the Hawke government, a very successful government in terms of elections won and so forth, but also in a range of other ways. Uh, one way of doing that is to perhaps invite you, Troy, to sort of, um, I suppose, expand on why it was that Anthony Albanese would have been saying in the lead up to the 2022 election that he wanted to have a government based on the Bob Hawke style you know the, the the substance of of cabinet government and ministers having autonomy and and authority to run their run their portfolios and a government of of proper procedure of 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 proper consideration of policy with policy ambitions and proper procedure in the process of deciding that so i wonder if i could invite you to talk to why albanese was you know invoking the hawk legacy within within Labor and as, a, as an ideal to Australian voters? Yeah, well, look, there's not been a Prime Minister who was more popular than Bob Hawke. I've discovered that his approval rating reached an astonishing 78% in 1984, which has not been uh, beaten by anybody since in Australian politics to be Prime Minister. He also led Labor to four election victories in a row. Um, the only other Prime Minister to come anywhere near that is Gough Whitlam with two election victories in a, in a row. So Bob Hawke is a very successful Labor Prime Minister. He's the longest serving Labor Prime Minister, the most electorally successful, and he's the most popular. He had a kind of a folk hero status, you know, which really developed in the 1960s and 70s. So he had this real connection with the Australian people. But I think what Anthony Albanese saw was uh, a model of government to be replicated. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the Rudd-Gillard government was somewhat dysfunctional. Uh, chaotic. Uh, there were multiple leadership uh, spills within it, even though it still managed to leave a, a reasonable policy legacy. So 
Um, so Anthony Albanese, I think, wanted to let the Australian voters know that he's looking for a different style of government, and he reached for Bob Hawke as the example. And so it's not only a, a popular prime minister who's in touch with voters, but he had a very effective cabinet. Uh, he let ministers uh, run their portfolios. He was not really an interventionist prime minister. He respected a frank and fearless uh, public service to tell him what he needed to know. He tried to put the country first uh, rather than his party first, and he left a really significant policy legacy, whether it is those economic reforms like uh, cutting tariffs or floating the dollar or whether it's the introduction of Medicare, a universal health scheme, or saving the Daintree rainforest or, or playing a role on the international stage. So, you know, in, in a nutshell, he became the sort of model for modern Labor, whereas the Rudd-Gillard government became the anti-model. Yes, it's interesting, uh, actually, that Hawke was, uh, you know, established that reputation. And by the time the Rudd-Gillard period came, I mean, they were also uh, invoking uh, the success of Bob Hawke, at, certainly at party conferences and in the lead up to the election in 2007, but didn't really deliver on that sort of, on that style. And and, and then we had um, eventually, all those years later, Albanese running in 2022 and very strongly kind of um, uh, selling this idea of a, a, a a successful Labor government that is actually there, Maria, really interestingly, is there for more than one term. I mean, Albanese was talking about setting up a second term in the first term even before he'd won the election because he had this idea and he cited Medicare actually, you know, made the point that, um, uh, you know, the Whitlam government had Medibank, the forerunner to Medicare, but because the Whitlam government wasn't there long enough to bet it in, that was rolled back by a subsequent conservative government. So he was sort of making this argument, Labor governments need to be not just successful in winning an election, but in holding government for a period of time and making significant changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just think about the the, the length of terms, uh, it's a three-year term. That's not that much time, actually. Mm to get anything done, especially something as substantive as, as Medicare or a carbon tax or the NDIS, right, to list a, a bunch of policies that, that were introduced by the Rudd-Gillard government. Or the that, NBN even yeah, that got, the NBN. got sort of cut priced precisely, after that. Yeah. Precisely, precisely. Um, you know, and the, and the NDIS has definitely changed in shape and intention to what uh, Rudd-Gillard had intended. And, of course, you know, we all famously know that the, the carbon tax was repealed. And, and I imagine for Albanese who, you know, um, grew up in the – New South Wales um, left. Well, yeah, the New South Wales left. Um, you know, he knows a little bit about losing, but he also <laughs> would have seen. He also would have seen many long-lived and very successful Labor state governments, right? And yeah. the and, and you know, and the powerful legacy of incumbency embedding down a different type of uh, way, a way that the state government might run or services it might deliver. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually really like how you kind of um, have reminded us that that Bob Hawke was a, a folk hero, Troy, because as someone who actually does not remember him at all as a political um, figure because I was too little, this really sort of struck me. And one of the other things, I have sort of two questions about this. and I'll go with the easier one first, which was, I was actually really impressed by Hawke's pre-parliamentary career. Like I knew he'd been involved in the union movement and I knew he had, um, you know, famously negotiated with Frank Sinatra over that um, aeroplane, which it's a story you can tell if you, if you like because it's amusing. But I, what I hadn't realised was how much globetrotting he had done and, you know, how substantive uh, for a, a, a essentially what is a domestic public figure, his engagement his attempts to affect peace in the Middle East and other other areas of the world with the Soviet Union, for example, were. Can, can you tell listeners a little bit about what he did? But also, I mean, I suppose, how was it unusual at that time? Um, how, how, might it, how might we think about it now? Yeah, I mean, I should note too that I'm 47, so I was seven years old when Bob Hawke became Prime Minister, so I don't have any uh, particularly fresh memories either. Um, but he was someone who Unfortunately, continue... I can say that I remember it all. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you took the bait there, Mark. But look, um, um, uh, look and he, he was an extraordinary figure before he was Prime Minister. I mean, um, people would have written books and they did write books about him before he even reached uh, the Lodge. I mean, he grew up in rural border town 
in the in the 1930s, moved to WA and became pretty academically minded. His mum was a sort of a stay-at-home sort of uh, social justice-minded mother. His father was a clergyman in the church and he went to Oxford University. He won a Rhodes Scholarship. So he's at Oxford University uh, in the 1950s um, and did a thesis on the Australian industrial relations system, which surprised a lot of people that you'd go all the way to Oxford, you know, have access to the greatest intellectual minds and resources, and you'd choose to write uh, a thesis on Australian industrial relations. But uh, he was thinking about what interested him and perhaps a future career. But, you know, as a young man, I discovered that he actually wanted to be a farmer. Um, or a doctor, and then after he'd been at Oxford, he actually went to the ANU and was studying for a PhD. He thought he'd have an academic career, and then he got this opportunity to help advise the ACTU, the Umbrella Trade Union Movement Organisation, in the sort of mid-1950s on their their wage cases. And so he did that, and then he became um, the first full-time researcher and advocate for the ACTU. This is in 1958. And pretty quickly, he became uh, uh, nationally known as a figure who was dynamic, exciting, intellectual, and he was winning big pay increases for Australian workers. So, you know, we had a, we had probably half their workforce uh, was a member of trade unions back then. So um, he did become a very, very popular figure. He was known as a, a larrikin intellectual. So he loved to drink. At Oxford, he'd won a Guinness uh, Book of Records drinking uh, record. Um, he was known to party. He liked uh, the women, uh, even when he was engaged to, to Hazel Masterson, who later became Hazel Hawke, of course. And he was in the media a lot. You know, the trade union movement in the 1950s and 60s was a pretty sort of dour kind of organisation, didn't have modern media skills. But Hawke loved talking to the media. You know, he'd wine and dine newspaper journalists. He'd appear on television shows. He was always on radio. I discovered at one point that he had, I think, maybe half a dozen phones on his desk um, at the ACTU with single lines where journalists could just ring him constantly and he could keep in touch with industrial disputes. (laughs) Um, But in in 1969, he became the ACTU president. And so that set in train a decade of him as the leader of the trade union movement. And there's never been a trade union leader who has been more successful more loved by working people or more prominent in our public policy debates. And that sort of uh, got him also involved more in the Labor Party, uh, dealing with federal and state governments. And so he became a, a real contributor to our sort of public policy discussions at the same time as living this larrikin, folk hero, big drinking, womanizing, celebrity life. Yeah, he was really uh, quite an extraordinary figure. As you say, he had this real profile even before he was in Parliament, so much so that when he finally does become the member for Wills in uh, 1980, he goes straight onto the front bench. He doesn't serve any time on the back bench and, of course, doesn't even make it technically through a full term in opposition on the front bench before he's actually the leader of the Labor Party, and we can come to that, how that happens as well. But, um, you know, a, a pretty extraordinary rise. And I- I- anyone who's seen vision of, um, of of those, you know, amazing um, Whitlam rallies in the in the early 1970s for the election of uh, the Whitlam government in 1972 and, and again in 74, we'll see Hawke in a lot of those pictures because he's by then a very huge figure in, in, in Labor as well. And there was well, a sort of- I think he's running a- the party then, isn't he? Yeah, well, yeah. he's not the yeah. secretary, but he's pres- president, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the, and he's um, uh, he's certainly regarded as already being talked about as someone who is a future prime minister by perhaps by him a lot, um, but but also by some others. Yeah, so he he is the he's the ALP president uh, through the Whitlam government from 1972 to 1975, and so he gets a pretty good up close look at how the Whitlam government is operating and. Whilst it left a vast policy achievement and Whitlam was an inspirational figure for many, it was really dysfunctional and chaotic. So Hawke learnt these really good lessons um, about a prime minister's office, about a cabinet, about the presentation of policies towards the public, the formulation of policies, um, how they're argued and so on. So, yeah, he's a big figure uh, through the 1970s. He's often introducing Gough Whitlam uh, the Prime Minister at rallies and election campaign launches, and, and he's he's in the media a lot too. But, you know, Hawke was also a little bit critical of the Whitlam government and often got into trouble because he 
had a different view to ministers about how things were going. So whilst he was involved, he kind of sort of set himself out as a as a different style of Labor leader to watch for the future. Yeah, and he knew what, as you, you were hinting there, he knew what he didn't want to be. So when he was presenting in 1983 the kind of government that he was going to lead if elected, he was talking about something that was specifically not uh, you know, showing all of those vulnerabilities, the chaos and and failures of the Whitlam period, and it was quite interesting um, that uh, uh, the recent election of of Albanese this is what we're saying before, I guess. But you know, was making sure that it was it also knew what it didn't want to be, and it didn't want to be Labor between two thousand and seven and twenty thirteen. Um, you know, the 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 Rudd Gillard Rudd period. So, kind of quite fascinating that 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 whole thing. And Albo, of course, was also citing, funnily enough, a bit of John Howard as well. And and those two governments kind of sit next to each other, really. The Hawke Keating period and then the Howard period. Two long periods where. Where the the governing party, although the second one obviously being on the conservative side, but where they just basically have a lock on winning elections for a period of time. Yeah, yeah, I suppose we could call them, you know, uh, policy reform and and consolidation periods. Before we go on to talk about um, pork in power, I I, I want to ask you, Troy, about a big theme in your book, um, which you explore in great depth and which, you know, actually was quite a shock to me. Like I knew that Hawke was a womanizer, but I had uh, no idea to the extent of what we might call harassment at the best of times um, that that he kind of engaged in. And I suppose, um, you know, would he be cancelled today? In five seconds, like, can you talk a little bit about, I suppose, how this sort of affected how he operated as a, a political as a politician, but also at the fact the fact that at one point you you mentioned that women simply loved Hawke, like they would they would go up to him in public and and, and touch him. So, can we talk a bit about this? Yeah, Hawke had this sort of charisma about him. I mean, I remember Susan Ryan, the former minister in his government telling me that it was about his hair, it was about his clothes, it was about the look of his skin, as well as his political profile and his often magnetic, you know, uh, personality. So there's something stylistically about Hawke that is hard to define, um, but he had it. And of course, we all know that Hawke had had affairs, Uh, he had acknowledged them, he wasn't a particularly good husband or a good father. We knew that he liked women, he was a womanizer in in that term, but I in, in deciding to write the story of his life, I had to really examine this. I had to unpack it. So I had to drill down and ask people who worked with him at the ACTU, who knew him at university, who knew him in government, who knew him in the Labor Party, to really tell me what actually was going on. Because it can just be dismissed as womanizing. But this is, this is uh, sexual activity on an industrial scale. We're talking hundreds, thousands of women. Um, over over decades, and I actually spoke uh, and interviewed some of the women that he had affairs with that had never spoken on the record before, and some wanted to keep their comments uh, off the record. He did have what I describe as compulsive sexual behaviour disorder, which is a, a, a big set of words, but it's actually diagnosed by the World Health Organization. And Blanche Dow Pujo, who of course had an affair with him um, while he was married and later married him. She agreed with me that Hawke was a sex addict. Um, he just simply couldn't get enough. And, yes, yeah, some women threw themselves at him. Some women he propositioned. Um, uh, but often he didn't have to go very far. But if he was rejected, he would often lash out and treat women rather appallingly. Now, we should clarify, we're not talking about violence. We're not talking about abuse. We're talking not, not talking about physical abuse, but we are talking about emotional and verbal abuse, that is not acceptable. Um, I even found interviews that Hawke gave in the 1960s, which had been kind of lost to history, where he talked about the kind of women that he liked, uh, the clothing they wore, the, what kind of stockings they wore, whether they wore uh, high heels or, or low flat shoes. Um, this is terrible behaviour that his wife, Hazel, was reading at the time and observing. Some women went to the house where his children were um, some sent letters in the mail saying, I'm having an affair with your husband. Some used to ring people up, ring, ring Hazel up. So this is terrible stuff. And this behaviour continued through, the, through to his prime ministership. So I say in the book that he had multiple affairs while he was prime minister, women at the lodge, 
um, that was covered up by his staff um, and security personnel who I also interviewed who acknowledged on the record that this was going on. So, look, I mean, cancelled is even a, a modest word. I mean, he would be drummed out of politics and out of public life if he did this. But let's just say this about Hawke. I mean, we can speculate a little bit. He was a big drinker, right? We're talking maybe 10, 20 drinks of, in, an, in an evening. Um, and he often showed up places drunk. He was often hung over and would disappear for a few days to recover. But when he went into Parliament, he gave up the drinking stone cold. And that shocked a lot of people. So what that tells us is about his burning ambition to be Prime Minister. So in a modern setting with different standards by everybody, including the media and in politics, maybe Hawke would have moderated that behaviour. Maybe he would have changed uh, in pursuit of his ambition, but uh, it, it would have been tough. I mean, there's, there's a bit of the JFK about it as well, isn't there? Oh, probably, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think an important point that you kind of make in your book is that a lot of the, the women that you interviewed and you talk about in the book um, – who who he propositioned and who declined him and then he was rather rude, like you got ugly knees or whatever he would say, right? They would often then like kind of excuse it or write it off. And I think that kind of goes to your point about different standards, um, you know, um, and it, it's, it is an interesting kind of thing for I, for us to sort of reflect on, I suppose, as a, as, a, as citizens in a different political system with different standards that are actually currently undergoing renovation and which I clearly not agreed, right? That's why we have differentiating standards and differentiating ideas between parties about what is not acceptable and what is and, and different types of means or and successes at achieving representation um, for women. But, you know, Hawke is a folk hero and um, – and and a larrikin and um, he's a bloke hero. <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I mean, I think people still hold him in like. Even though I've read all these terrible things about Hawke, I still respect him enormously as a as a political figure. And I think I mean that's something that I guess I have to think through, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. You know. And well, there was like one woman in the cabinet. There was Susan Ryan, the aforementioned. Precisely. Uh, yeah. Uh, Who he propositioned at one point. Yeah. Like you know. It was. A, it certainly was a different country with a different set of standards, as as Troy said. We can explore these There's issues. Complexity a bit, there. Bit, bit yeah. further in a moment. Let's just yeah. take a quick break and back in the tick. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Troy, uh, what, what, do you, what do you, any response to what Maria was just saying there before the break uh, in relation to, um, I suppose, you know, that, that kind of the two sides of him? I mean, history has, in a sense, been very kind to him and, and it has given something of a leave pass to that sort of behaviour, even though that sort of behaviour would, as you say, have him more than just cancelled. It would have him drummed out of politics, presumably, but but at the time it didn't. Yeah, it's worth unpacking a little bit, and there's a couple of observations I'd make in response to that. One of those is that Hawke was always a great advocate for the advancement of women um, exactly. in the Australian com community. He, he employed women at the ACTU. He ran uh, cases uh, for maternity leave and things like that. Uh, increasing pay of women, uh, improving their standards of condition and conditions. And, of course, in his government, he passed the Sex Discrimination Act. And Susan Ryan was someone who said to me that he was rock solid um, in support of that um, and making sure that they managed it uh, and they actually split affirmative action and did that later. Um, but he was always a great advocate for women um, in a policy sense. So that's important to note as well. He's not a misogynist. Um, maybe he's a bit a bit of a sexist, and he did say to me that he 
he was a, a bit of a dinosaur when it when it came to women in the 1950s. And I also uncovered some very you know, damning letters uh, that he wrote to Hazel in the 1950s when they were engaged, and he was at Oxford University. His language is completely unacceptable today on a number of levels. The other thing to note, and this is really really interesting, that something that I had to grapple with in writing the book, is that a lot of the women that he had affairs with didn't see anything wrong with that. Now, they are a different generation of women. Um, they knew he was married. They enjoyed it. They liked being with him. They have no regrets about it whatsoever. And they accepted that as part of a social norm at the time. And so I think it's important to recognise that there are different generations of feminists. They are still feminists, but they didn't have the sort of personal qualms about being in a secret relationship with a married public man. Now, that's up for them to decide whether that's right or wrong. Um, but I just note that there is a different view among, among generations of women in relation to some of these things. Yeah, there's complexity there. Now, when we, we all saw each other recently at a uh, workshop, a symposium, however you describe it, uh, talking about a number of aspects of the Hawke government, Troy, you uh, beamed in to give a very interesting paper from Brisbane because you were attending the uh, memorial service or funeral, I'm not sure what the, what the right term is, uh, for Bill Hayden, which is a good way, a good segue of, of kind of asking this question because we'll now move on to sort of Hawke in, in government. Um, Hawke is a figure who is uh, enormous in, in the Labor pantheon, no question, but he's also sandwiched between two giants of Labor, uh, one of which didn't actually make it to be Prime Minister, but Bill Hayden, the reforming uh, leader of the opposition who Hawke displaces, but who has set up the Labor Party so much for the victory that it is then able to achieve in 1983. And of course, Paul Keating, who becomes such a dominant figure within the Hawke government, increasingly so, and eventually, after two attempts, replaces Hawke, rolls him in 1991. Uh, so that, w w what can you say about that, Troy, in terms of uh, you know, Hawke looking at him? He is, you can't really talk about Hawke without talking about Hayden or Keating. Yeah, so it's a tragic story for Bill Hayden, who uh, had become Labor leader at the end of 1977, came within a whisker of leading Labor back to government in 1980. I think his primary vote was something like 49%, um, but still lost, which is a figure the Labor Party can only dream about uh, having today. And he had remade Labor's policies. He had refurbished its front bench, elevated some rising stars, recruited new candidates, made the party sort of fit for government, I guess. But Hawke came into Parliament in 1980 and made no bones about wanting to be leader. He said it publicly, repeatedly. And this is something I actually admire about Hawke. He had an ambition to be leader and prime minister, and he never hit it. These days, if you ask a, an ambitious politician if they want to be leader or prime minister, they will run a mile from that question and don't want to um, you know, answer it in any way possible. But Hawke always embraced it. And uh, I remember Bill Hayden telling me one time that um, Hawke had come around to his opposition leader's office and and pulled out a pole from his suit jacket and said, look, you know, the party would would do better with me as leader. Why don't you think about resigning? And Bill just told him to get stuffed and get out of his office. Um, so there was a lot of tension um, between them. I think and Campbell in did that to Nelson, didn't he? He did. He yeah. did. He did. He did. He, <laughs> Quite quickly. He'd bring up and say, resign. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that didn't work. So he, had a, he launched a leadership challenge in mid-1982. This is Hawke against Hayden. Um, and he lost narrowly, I think 42 to 37. But, you know, Hayden's card was marked. And Hayden was an extraordinary person, but he lacked a bit of confidence. He had some self-doubt about him, which goes back to his upbringing in Brisbane and being a policeman and seeing horrible things and suffering abuse from his father. And Hawke had been showered with love as a child. You know, he had no doubts about his capacities, uh, his abilities, uh, his parents told him from a young age he was going to be prime minister. Well, Bill's parents would never have said that to him. And so they so they came together and had this huge clash. And in the end, um, Hayden agreed to step aside um, for Hawke in 1983. And on the day that Malcolm Fraser tried to trap Labor with Hayden as leader. Yes, I remember it well, election. February 3rd. 1983. Uh, you know, you've got you've got Fraser at the lodge seeking approval from the Governor General for for an election, and you've got Labor swapping from Bill Hayden, who was who was a substantive figure in so many ways, but unquestionably didn't have the sort of charisma 
Uh, that word charisma became a defining characteristic of Hawke. It was talked about all the time, and it became a thing in itself almost. You know, this was a man who had charisma in spades, and um, and in the end, he was an unstoppable force. You're right, and the polls showed that. The polls showed Hawke was more popular than Hayden, and Labor would almost certainly win an election with him as leader. And one of the most striking things I found in researching the book was everyone knows they had some kind of deal where Hayden agreed to step aside, he'd become foreign minister in a Labor government, uh, his staff would be looked after, his supporters in caucus would maintain their positions in the ministry, and maybe down the track he'd get a, an ambassadorial spot. Um, but nobody knew that these commitments were actually put in writing. And so Hayden had this sealed file at, at the National Library, which he gave me access to, and I didn't know what to expect. I just knew there was a, a sealed file there. Um, and there I found these letters that they had both signed stipulating this deal. Now, it would never happen today. I mean, it, you could say, is it, is it some kind of leverage? Is it possibly some kind of form of corruption? You know, a, a, a commitment, in, a, a promise in return for resigning for political benefit. Um, but there Hayden was a very canny and shrewd negotiator. And he took these two letters where they agreed to this deal and put them in his pocket and kept them as his kind of insurance. Uh, that he would be a minister in the Hawke government. Uh, his, his supporters would be looked after, his staff would be looked after, and one day he'd get an ambassadorial post. Now, he didn't take the ambassadorial post. He cashed that in um, and became Governor-General in 1989. So uh, it's a fascinating dynamic between the two men. And and those in Cabinet say that Hayden was a very effective foreign minister. Yes. Uh, and, they, and they got on well together in, in Cabinet. And that, that's actually a lesson for modern politics, isn't it, that former leaders can still be constructive and cooperative and make a contribution to the nation. I'm not sure that we've had any of them since other than perhaps Alexander Downer. Well, um, yeah, you, yeah, you might not talk about Bill Shorten in those terms at the moment just simply because of... Um uh, you know the, the sort of policy differences between being perhaps you know the the dynam dynamic between a foreign minister and a prime minister is perhaps a little higher energy than the dynamic between a prime minister and 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 the disability services minister, which is which is what uh, Bill Shorten is now. But um, uh, they they seem to be uh, on the same page most of the time. Uh, it just doesn't seem to have quite that same sort of energy. But it's true. Hayden was a a very effective foreign minister and also one who had very strong ambitions for a more independent foreign policy stance by Australia. And I think that's that's really you know substantively worth noting. Um, just on your point, Troy, about you know the deal, the written deal. That is just so fascinating. Um, and you say, well, you know, whether some people might consider it corruption. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me that way, but if it is, then so is the coalition agreement, which is basically an agreement between an unpublic agreement, a confidential agreement between two parties for the uh, which guarantees ministerial positions and, uh, and who knows what policy uh, concessions uh, that the Libs make to the, to the Nats and so forth. Um, all I can say is that whenever yeah, I've I think the written, point is that there should be transparency about there ought to be, these yeah. kind of um, political agreements that have a public component to it, you know, the expenditure of public monies, policy decisions by government and, and so on. Well, that's true. But, I mean, the case of the coalition agreement, it, it, is, it does have substance in terms of policy and there are reasons why the Liberal government couldn't pursue certain things because they had an agreement with the Nats that had not been made public. And whenever I wrote about this or, or questioned uh, Barnaby Joyce and others, I remember Joyce saying at one stage there's, there's only three rules that it remained private, that, are, you know, that remain confidential, that remain confidential. Um, you know, uh, you can't talk about it now. I, I think that is uh, that is uh, uh, deeply suspicious uh, as a as a piece of public policy, as an instrument of public policy. But yeah, fascinating. Also, just on the point, and I'll come to you, Maria, in a sec. Uh, just on the point about the substance of that agreement protecting his supporters. One of those key people protected was. Paul Keating, of course, because uh, Hayden appointed Keating as shadow treasurer before he ceded the leadership to Hawke. That is before Hayden ceded the leadership to Hawke. And that is why a young Paul Keating is the treasurer in 1983. And he takes a little time to to find his, um, his legs in that job, but becomes obviously an absolutely towering figure, a dominant figure in the end. Yeah, you're right, Mark, that Bill Hayden did make Paul Keating shadow treasurer just weeks before losing the job. But Paul Keating wasn't actually mentioned in that letter as someone who should be protected. It was actually Neil Blewett, um, John Dawkins. Um, Mick Young. And 
and maybe one or two others. Um, but you're right. Actually, interestingly, one of the first items of items of business that the ACTU had with Bob Hawke as Prime Minister was to remove Keating as Treasurer. Uh, they wanted Ralph Willis, who had actually been Hawke's deputy at the ACTU many years earlier, uh, to become Treasurer. They eventually so got the their end, wish. Was, he did. But in the end, it was Hawke who saved Keating um, from that role, and that's actually an interesting part of the book, their relationship and that mm. dynamic. Um, how it developed. Hawke began very confident. Keating was very nervous. Um, and then I think that probably flipped by eight or nine years later where Keating was then the supreme confident treasurer um, and their relationship, which was largely cooperative, spectacularly exploded. And which also had its own uh, little instrument in relation to the handover of power, of course, the famous Kirribilli Agreement. The, the Kirribilli Agreement, of course, was called the Kirribilli Agreement because it was done at the Prime Minister's Sydney residence in 1988. Uh, Keating pushed Hawke uh, for a deal to hand over the leadership at some point. And they had um, Peter Abels and, and Peter Abels and, and Bill Keldy there as witnesses. I mean, it was very, you know, the, kind of... The representatives of capital and labour. Yes. Um, Abels for Hawke, Kelty for Keating, <laughs> uh, watching this agreement, this meeting that took place in about five minutes. Um, and Hawke agreed. And now for Keating, this was it. He left Kiribilli thinking, well, I'm going to be Prime Minister one day. But Hawke had actually played Keating pretty shrewdly because what it meant was that Hawke got several more years um, as Prime Minister before he had to hand over and he also had to win the 1990 election. So, you know, politics percolates with these kind of leadership discussions and secret agreements and understandings and so on. And um, it's, it's, all, it's always a fascinating aspect of the sort of personality component of politics. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think he came to, to regret not perhaps honouring that agreement um, when he should have, uh, which sort of directly led to Hawke's uh, downfall. One of the things that always struck me about this government and about Hawke in particular, and we've sort of alluded to this already, is the sort of professionalism of, of this of this lot and their mm. focus on what you described, Troy, as the as the national interest. And, and I think one of the things that we um, have sort of forgotten is that one of Hawke's key messages was around building consensus and about sort of finding a united vision to bring Australians together. I think that was the tagline of that the 1983 the, election. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And that is basically the anathema of how you do politics today, which is actually about segmentation, differentiation, splitting people off. I mean, this Just is Just look a, at the recent voice campaign. I mean, I, I, indeed, yeah. indeed. And this is a really glib way to enter this conversation and you're free to take it to a higher level, Troy. But, you know, do you think he could be elected today given that that style of politics is so different to what is deemed successful. Yeah, look, it's interesting because, you know, Hawke was often said was a narcissist, right? He had supreme self-confidence in himself, uh, a, a sense of destiny he acknowledged about becoming prime minister one day. But I don't think he was a narcissist because a narcissist wouldn't share power in government. Hawke ran a very cooperative, very collegiate cabinet, caucus, public service structure. He worked with people. And, you know, you talk about bringing Australia together and the consensus, which became a sort of buzzword for his approach to government. It really began as in the trade union movement in the 1970s, as we were talking earlier, where he did bring people together. He brought unions and business together. He was known as the great negotiator, someone who could resolve protracted industrial disputes. And so he had those tools as part of his political personality. And then he said he wanted to bring Australians together. Um, you know, a common effort, a common vision, where we're going. And of course, he had this 1983 economic summit. And the idea behind that was to get agreement on the challenges facing the nation, if not the policy remedies. Um, so th this was a big part of Hawke's personality. And you're right, I'm not sure that uh, we have a politician with those talents today uh, who can do that. But it's essential as to why Hawke was able to win significant support from non-traditional labor areas and seats um and you know he often wasn't he often didn't win votes from conservatives let's call them that but he had their respect um for what he was doing and he was always honest and open he tried to put politics second to the country and so that was who he was and that was his makeup it was not a a political construct and not a a strategy so much as as instinctive into who he was uh as as a person he didn't like 
confrontation and his instinct was was to bring people together. Yeah, that's that's quite fascinating, that question. Just taking it a bit further, I mean, um, perhaps one of the reasons why it wouldn't work is, is because it's been done. And we saw Rudd do, uh, do a little bit of this, you know, have the sort of butcher's paper session with lots of people being brought to Parliament House. We saw the same thing happen with, uh, with Albanese early in this term, uh, brought people together for a range of, you know, there were economists and people from business and everything else. So subsequent iterations of Labor have done their own version of it, but there are some things that you can only really do to maximum effect once, uh, and it was perhaps a less cynical uh, media than, than, and certainly less fragmented media than we have now. Um, and, and perhaps that really, Troy, speaks to also the problems that subsequent iterations of Labor have, which is that and you know this is a, a a glib but true statement that you can only float the dollar once. You can only create Medicare once. You can only uh, you know reduce tariffs and liberalise the the financial system. Uh, you can only do these things once. You can do tweaking after that. You can you can uh, do, do some other policy things. But there were a lot. There was a lot of big stuff that could be done, um, which set out the reform chops of of Labor during that period. Uh, and Labor has, I think, struggled to find those big attention-grabbing um, sort of iconic or totemic reforms since. Yeah, I think Labor, though, does have big ambitions. And, you know, when I've interviewed Anthony Albanese, he does talk about fundamentally changing the country. Um, he does want to do that across the policy perspective, spectrum, rather, I should say. So he does have these ambitions, but he doesn't have the same political talents as Bob Bork, and he wouldn't even acknowledge um, having those as well. And politics has changed, although I do think the media gave Hawke a hard time. He didn't get a free free ride. But you're right that it is more tribal um, and more fragmented today, which also makes politics harder. And, you know, we often have think tanks who put out reports saying you should do this and you should do that. Great ideas, but they rarely say how you should do them or how you can do them, how you can win policy consensus. Um, so, yes, politics is tougher uh, but Hawke was a pretty special political talent and some of the big things that he did, those structural changes to the economy or the social welfare system or the environment, were things that have been contemplated or attempted by previous governments, the Whitlam or Fraser governments, particularly the Fraser government, and, and they didn't do them. So, you know, it didn't mean that politics was in any way easier. Uh, it was it was still tough, but it, it, it was different. I, I think there's a couple of things to sort of add to that. Sorry, Mark. No, you go. Like... Um, I mean, I think that was, there was a few things, I suppose, that made it hard for Hawke and a few things that made it easier. So, I mean, like, yes, the, the media was less fragmented then, but it was at least interested in policy and, and um, you know, the job was basically convincing elite media who would then distribute that message. Yes. And that certainly is something, I think, in, in Hawke's favour. But, I mean, I think sometimes we underestimate, like, how much – um, strife, um, Australia, but other countries around the world were in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. Like in some ways, Hawke had the the challenge of working out how to come up with a new model after after the post-war consensus had exhausted itself. But the advantage of, um, I suppose, you've sort of articulated it in a positive sense in a way, Troy, like Whitlam introduced Medicare and, and Fraser tr discussed but never implemented a whole bunch of things. And in some With John ways, John Howard as treasurer, even indeed, indeed, right? Option C, the GST, so on and so forth. Uh, I think the big um, was it the Campbell inquiry into the economy, which is like our equivalent of the Henry Tax Review. But like a whole bunch of conversations and discussions, crisis, really high levels of unemployment, that kind of reach this consensus point where Australians and their citizens around the world are, are sort of like, okay. I'm uh, done with the easy answers. I guess we could try something radical because life is shit and inflation's high and employment's high um, and something really needs to be done. And I suppose that's an interesting question for the Albanese government right now. Like, you know, have they arrived at a similar sort of time but with, I guess, some some dimensions around communication that make that more complicated and, and with some – existential dilemmas around the, the climate and the way that's and, – and AI actually, like we're kind of living through two like industrial revolution scale changes that, that you know, Hawke, you know, had computers, but it's not, it's not really on the same order of magnitude, is it? Well, what, is that is that a, a way of saying though also that like confidence, public confidence was, was 
quite high in terms of what Hawke had when he was elected, right? That bringing Australia together message and the, the, the kind of manifesto that Labor was running with was a reassuring one. It was one that Australians bought into. Uh, we have the, the most recent Labor government elected with a 32.6% primary vote uh, and a very wafer-thin you know, majority in the House after after preferences, um, and a much more a, a much greater sense of there being a multiplicity of different interests and so forth, and and of course layer on top of that that Hawke and then eventually Keating or quite quickly I suppose, but certainly Hawke initially just a fantastically good communicator, a, a, a born persuader, which was why Troy he was regarded as the great conciliator, the great negotiator, because he could actually run arguments and. Bring interests together and 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 inspire confidence, competence, and uh, find a path forward. And that's that that sort of politician is a is a pretty rare commodity. Yeah, I think there's a few things there um, that I can add to. I mean, and I, it's worth emphasising three things about Hawke's approach. One is policy development, so serious effort, long term focus on developing policies at the start with the public service. Yes, putting a political layer over it, discussing them in cabinet, having robust cabinet debates. So policy development is really important. And I'm not sure recent governments have invested the time in that. The next thing is being able to articulate and explain those policies. So a long time going to conferences, radio studios, television, direct mail. I mean, all sorts of really effort, a real big effort on communication and winning the argument. I mean, Hawke, you know, had a great speechwriter in Graham Frudenberg who'd worked for Gough Whitlam and Arthur Corwell, and he always says the key to a great speech was argument. So he had an argument. He had a case to make. Um, and thirdly, implementation. Often governments develop policies, announce them, and don't focus on the implementation. And the robo-debt scandal is a really good example of that. So implementation of policy, monitoring of policy, testing of policy ideas, and changing course when you need to. So developing, articulating and implementing policy is really important. But the other point I'd make quickly is that some of these things were really tough. You know, whether it's Susan Ryan introducing the Sex Discrimination Act, I mean, there were protests. People were saying she was going to destroy the family. Um, They had placards with her uh, figured as Adolf Hitler with SWAT stickers on it and things like that. Uh, Medicare, the doctors went on strike and said, we can't support Medicare. This is a terrible idea. We can't have it now. It's part of the policy consensus in Australia. A lot of voters didn't like cutting tariffs. They didn't like privatisation, um, but they stuck with those things anyway, even through a recession. So a lot of these things were really strongly contested. Um, and of course, the development industry didn't like um, the saving of the Franklin Dam in Tasmania or protecting the Daintree or the Kakadu. So a lot of these things were really strongly contested. And because they succeeded and they're there on the legislative books, we kind of think that they were easy, Yeah. but they were not. They were hard. Yeah, or that the opposition supported them, which they like to claim now because that was such a successful government. But, of course, they, they opposed many of those reforms tooth and nail the whole the whole time. Troy, um, I, I have one last question, and, and that is about Hawke's what he sort of considered to be his his major failure in public life, and that was on Indigenous affairs. I suppose, um, how should we think about his his legacy today in the in the wake of the Voice, but also just as a sort of more general policy um, uh, failure by successive governments? Yeah, look, I mean, I was lucky and fortunate to do the last ever interview with Bob Hawke, not knowing it was going to be his last interview, of course, but it was for this book, and we did talk about these issues right at the end. I knew. He was fading and he was preparing to leave the earth. Um, and so he was pretty open and frank. And he always said that the recession in 1990 was a regret in how they had managed that. And the other thing was land rights. And I'm really tough on Hawke on land rights because it had been Labor policy. Um, he had promised to legislate land rights, but because of opposition from the mining industry and the West Australian gov- Labor government led by Brian Burke, he welched on that commitment given to Indigenous people. And he later welched on a commitment for a treaty um, that he made in 1988. Um, But land rights was particularly a regret for him. But, and I don't think he fully grappled with it. He acknowledged it as a regret, but the truth is we'd never had a prime minister more popular than Hawke in the post-war period. And he could have used his political authority and his skills to get that through, Um, but he didn't. He, He took the low road. 
the easy road. And so I'm quite critical on him for that. Um, but, you know, this is another example where this country, I personally think, just hasn't got this question right about how we treat our Indigenous people, how we recognise them and so on. There's, it's always a, a policy area, which I know you've been discussing on the podcast, where we sometimes make two steps forward and one step back. Um, and so this is a big regret of Hawke's, and I think it's a, a big failure, and it's one that he, he did recognise to an extent. Yes, it's a very good point, and, 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 and I agree with you. I think Hawke had a particular persona, a particular relationship with working Australia uh, in, a, in a more kind of analogue kind of society than we have now uh, that uh, could have uh, he could have used leveraged that relationship with um, with with blue-collar Australians with regional Australians to to you know bring them across on that question uh, and about building a, a stronger more unified and more just Australia which recognized past injustices and 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 did something about it and it is uh, it is a failing of course all governments have their failures but that's a pretty big one. Um, we didn't even talk about the Australia card, which is uh, which is be, be a novelty these days, uh, given the way everyone just literally blithely surrenders their identity in all kinds of ways to all kinds of different corporations. But uh, back at the time, that was red hot as well. Uh, uh, back in the mid '80s, there, um, the idea of all Australians having kind of a citizenship card to validate them and allow them access to services and the like. Anyway, uh, Troy, it's been a terrific pleasure talking with you, and 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 great to talk about something that's kind of in its own way on balance very much a success story uh, for Australia and and about a time when governments could actually make some quite significant steps forward and those steps become lasting and baked in and to the point where we even had as as we all would know uh, can remember um, Tony Abbott chiming in Parliament that you know the Liberal Party is the best friend that uh, Medicare's ever had. You know, and he'd have all the backbenchers saying it as well, because that's the journey they'd been taken on over a long period of time when they used to be absolutely totally opposed to it. Yeah. Uh, and that goes to Albanese's point that you've got to be there for long enough to to make something part of the furniture, uh, so that you can guarantee that you know it, it uh, as far as reforms go, so you can guarantee that they don't get. Uh, don't become political fodder for the next election and then get rolled rolled over uh, as a number of things have uh, we've seen. That's it really for democracy sausage not for the year of course uh, that that'll come later on but certainly for this week. So thank you Troy. Well thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm a big fan of the podcast and I think you guys play a really important role in our polity. Um, so thank you for allowing me to Aww, be part of it. Thanks. That's uh, very nice of you to say so and very much appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all, all of your work and um, we'll look forward to whatever next comes from you. This is a good stocking stuffer, but you need a really big stocking because it's a big book. Yes, that's right. It's called Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. That's it for this week. Talk to you again next week. 